When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why was Vade Divac so good? Will the NBA ever get better at the three-point shot? What is Russell Westbrook like off the court? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, as always, I'm joined by Jared Weiss of The Athletic, The Athletic, Jared Good morning. Good morning. It's Hall of Fame weekends. I figured we talk about some Hall of Fame in today. Yes, the goats, the hall, the, the Hoffs. <laughs> Can we say Hoff? Probably not. Hall of Fame. Um, okay, let's talk some Hall of Fame because really this is where we are at this point in the season. And I wonder if anything's going to happen like this coming up week that we can talk about if we're NBA related. I don't know, but maybe you can make something happen. Yeah, it's funny. Like now, theoretical trades that get brought up on other podcasts tend to be the uh, the dominant storylines for this part of the uh, of, of the off season. But I was just over in Springfield at the Hall of Fame earlier this week, and you know, a few a, a lot of the players that were getting inducted were talking about kind of their influence on the modern game. And this is a very interesting class because it was mostly guys that played in the 70s and 80s. There weren't there weren't any recent retirees on the men's side, at least Teresa Witherspoon on the women's side who retired, I guess, you know, much later than that in the last you know, decade or whatever. But so um, Vlade Divac was the one that was really interesting because, you know, Vlade was this you know center that could play. I mean, he played out of the post for the most part because of his because uh, of the one he played. But he was the kind of guy that could thrive in transition, flying down the court, handling from the top of the key. You know, and I feel like now if he was in the league nowadays, he would have been used completely differently, he would have been much more of an outside in player. Um, you know, you tweeted out that video clip of him. I guess it was just like a one minute highlight clip. And yeah. my reply, my reply to that was, wow, Jokic looks a lot different with the beard. Yes. And yes. <laughs> it was just. You know, and like I, I was, I was, I guess when I was old enough to really appreciate the game, Vlade was on the Kings and was more of a, you know, was playing a little bit more of a low post traditional pivot man style center. But you go back and you watch him when he was at the Lakers and he was very Jokic like a lot of the time. And I, I thought it was really fascinating just to see how many similarities there were between the way that we're seeing guys like Cat. Embiid, Jokic, uh, so many others. You know, some of the center prospects coming into the league now. How similar they are in style to the way Vlade used to play. Uh, without question. And you know what? He's a much better athlete when he was younger than than uh, Jokic is even now. He was much more like uh, you know fluid and flexible, and and you know he had some dunks on people that were pretty impressive. He and he, the most impressive thing I thought I saw in the highlight was he blocked somebody and like caught it with one hand out of the air and just pulled it down. Um, he could really move. It's funny because I remember that was my era of kind of growing up. And, you know, when, when they came in, when the Lakers came in to play the Bulls, uh, the first time the Bulls made the, the finals, and it was sort of like, what is this team? Who is this guy? And he has that famous shot where he gets a, an and one, and then Magic gives him that hug. And uh, it was just an amazing moment to sort of see him 
do that uh, and be that guy. And you're right. He, he is just like Jokic is now, but he also he could shoot well. He would have been shooting threes. He would have been shooting four or five threes a game easy now, and I'm sure he would have been able to hit 35% of them minimum. Um, yeah, and it's startling because, again, you realize he started in the NBA at 89-90. You know, how, how, it's only now we're catching up. How many years is that now? It's 20 years? Uh, almost 30. Thir- I mean, sorry, 30 years. 30 years. Now, interestingly enough, I just interviewed Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was also Chris Jackson at LSU, who was doing Steph before Steph. 20 years ahead of the time. And it's just remarkable to me that we could kind of go dormant for so long when you see the unicorn and then not actually like embrace it for so long. Like, what do you, how do you attribute that? I don't even know. I think it's that when you first see a unicorn, you're in such a disbelief that you spend so much time ruling out its existence. And then eventually you start to see more and more horses with little horns sticking out of their head, a little bit more of a rainbow mane, and you start to recognize, okay, maybe this is something real, and then eventually fully embrace it. So there has to be that one person that completely bucks the trend early on that people reject the concept because it's so it's so different than what they're used to. It's such an inversion of the principles that everybody operates off of that it kind of gets rejected at first, and then eventually people watching that person, they start to come up and it be influenced by them. And there's such a mass of that that eventually it starts to change the way that we view whatever the standard is. Sure. I mean, listen, he, was, he came in from Europe. He was like smoking cigarettes. So I could see why. And that's the other thing is Euros in back then were kind of looked at as, you know, like guys who really couldn't play. And we saw that also with um, in Portland with, um, oh my goodness gracious, then he went to the Nets and he got killed, um, uh, Petrovic, uh, Drazen Petrovic, who like couldn't be on the court. Now, granted, that Portland team was really good. They made a finals or two. Um, and so, so I could see why it was harder to break in. But like he gets to uh, New Jersey at the time and he's like a 20-point-a-game scorer. And he's awesome. And again, I, I feel like there, there, there was a natural resistance to that. Even Oscar Schmidt, I don't know if you remember him. He was one of the best oh, Brazilian yeah. players. And like he came late and he was whatever. But again, you just got the sense they never were even going to give him a legit chance, even back then. And, it, you know, it slowly took God, the Marcellonuses and um, the Detlef Schramps to finally sort of change that whole mindset. But I think that's part of it, too, is sort of this xenophobia or whatever that would be called uh, on the basketball court. And well, uh, it's too bad because it's like you kind of want to get to the evolution a lot quicker. Well, unfortunately, evolution and progress takes a long time. But, you know, what's funny is back then, a lot of the stereotype was that European players were soft. And that was something we heard for a long time, even though like most of the guys that were making the league were big, you know, Balkan or, you know, Soviet brutes that were incredibly tough. Like that was that was what's so ironic about it. Yeah. Um, But I I think a lot of that was. I guess racism probably and just in more so xenophobia rather than racism specifically. But so, um, but like uh, it was either those guys or skilled shooters and in Europe, they were just better shooters because they were still prioritizing that skill development while in the States, a lot, most young perimeter players are prioritizing attacking capability. And so those, so there was just a greater supply of shooting talent from Europe for a long time in my at least like when I was growing up and now I mean we're still seeing that to this day but I think now it's just that in America they're learning that the European model is more effective and the ultimate irony is that we're seeing now in this FIBA tournament that the talk is that in FIBA they're too physical 
because of the rules, the rule differences that the like American players are kind of struggling to deal with that. And I was just seeing somebody, I don't, I don't remember if it was Windhorse or somebody was just tweeting on a clip of Giannis trying to attack the lane. And they were making the great point that like Giannis is having trouble in the FIBA play just because they can put hands on him when he attacks the lane. It's totally, it, it doesn't get the free, you know, kind of like the matador defense right. that by rule, you kind of have to play to a degree in the States. So it's amazing how that kind of has flipped itself on its head over the years. If you approach all sports the way I do with basketball, then you must be an informed viewer, ready to put some of your money down on the games. Baseball season is in full swing, and it's never been more exciting to place a wager using betonline.ag. It's a long season, there are plenty of games to choose from, and because you're in the conversation, I'm giving you an extra 50% added onto your sports betting bankroll when you go to clnsmedia.com slash bball and use code CLNS50. Best part is, the bonus will be added onto your balance within seconds. Again, support my podcast by going to clnsmedia.com slash bball and use code CLNS50. A minimum deposit of 25 bucks is required to qualify for the bonus. Please see BetOnline's general rules for additional terms and conditions regarding bonuses. The way I see it is they're, they're going by playoff rules, the referees. They're, they're refereeing as if this is the finals or the conference finals where we see a degree of physicality that you don't normally see anywhere else. So in theory, he should be somewhat used to that because they got into the playoffs and played a couple rounds. But um, yeah, that that is certainly a thing. I, I, you know, and who knows if the referees have this notion of underdog and they're going to make it. You know, they want to see if the other guys can can you know compete and level sure. the playing field. Um, and and you know, one thing we didn't mention about Divots, I feel like, which is important, is the passing. Um, that that is really the thing that made him so good, and that's what made those Kings teams so exciting when you had Weber and him uh, running around. In fact, um, the other funny thing was Coutinho Mobley was in the show, and he was telling me about he played one year in Sacramento with those guys, and he scored 18 a game, and he even said it's like it was the easiest 18 points I ever scored. And again, when you watch those guys run, and then you kind of look at it how you know the Warriors are running a lot of their stuff when Durant is not you know doing the ISO stuff. Again, it's one of those things where the O2 Warrior, uh, O2 Kings, you know, the way Adelman ran his offense, it was like, why did it take so long to like kind of only now, you know, the majority of the league is kind of really looking to attack that same way. It's just mind-boggling sometimes. And again, we're back to this beating our head against the wall as far as why evolution takes so long. That's probably what the definition of evolution is. But um, he was just so far ahead of his time as far as the passing. But that said, if you go back in the 70s and watch a lot of these centers, these, even these big Ofing centers, they all could pass from the high post. That was like the main skill they needed to have. And it was weird how it kind of like disappeared for a while. Maybe, I guess, the Patrick Ewings uh, and the Kim Olajuwans came in and were the scorers. And we lost a lot of that, that, that sort of revolving hub offense where everyone would be cutting around, cutting around, and the big center would be waving the ball with one hand and then just boop, drop it off for layups or open shots. I think a big part of it was just that you had better dripple penetrators as you got past the, you know, the, the merger. Yeah. And in, you know, in the nineties you had guys that could really break down the defense and ISO or pick and roll. Um, but like right now I have, a, I, I just have some old highlights of David Robinson and Vlade Divac going and, uh, from the 95 playoffs. And most of these plays are, they kick it to Robinson, the low post, and he just whips a pass out to a guy at the top of the key while somebody cuts in to try to draw the defense back in. So, you know, I think there was still a good degree of playmaking through the post, but 
it's probably that the guys that were the bigs that played out of the low post in the 90s were just better scorers than the ones that came before them. So yeah. they could just go attack themselves most of the time. Yeah, and it's also a mindset for the coaches. That that also is the key. The coaches still have a, a, a really you know great degree of control over the game. And that, that, that was when I was interviewing Abdul Marouf. I was like, you know, I was a couple of years behind you in high school while you were in college. And we would just sort of stare at him, you know, almost blankly, like, here's a guy shooting threes off the dribble and deep shots off the dribble. And no one's telling him not to do that. And meanwhile, no one else is doing that because all the other coaches at every level are saying, oh, you can't do that. And um, it just is amazing how much control there is there. And how would that's affected the game? I mean, when, you know, just for a little history, Hank Lucetti was one of the first guys to shoot a jump shot. And at the time in 1937 or 36, 37, 38, you had major college coaches saying no player on my team is ever going to shoot that way. You know, can you imagine that if that actually held and we didn't have jump shooting, you know, uh, ever? Like, it would just be crazy. And yet respected coaches who won a lot of games felt that way, which is, I guess I'm kind of ranting a little bit because I get pushed back for some of my ideas that I want to throw out there about the game. And, and I kind of will point to that saying, okay, if we felt that way in 1937, we wouldn't be shooting. We wouldn't have Steph. Well, I mean, we talk, I feel like we talk about this on the show a lot about just a, a, a major coaching principle is just not ruling things out is not having a set way that things have to be done. And, you know, trying to figure out because every single method that you ever do when you're a coach is a compromise of prioritizing one thing to you know, to deprioritize something else. So if you want to have a five out offense, there's going to be, there's, you know, there's always going to be some sort of compromise that you're reaching. I mean, I just saw it. No, I'm not going to bring it back to my coverage because I always see that. But so, no, 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 I won't do it this time. But so, um, the point is, is that what, the coaches that I think are great are the ones that you have your standard set of principles and you're constantly evolving those and you're reflecting those to reflect the talent, other things that you can learn from others at all times. Uh, I mean, the change of talent that comes into the league, because that's a huge part of what, how the league is playing is just the type of players that are coming in. You got to work with what you have. Um, but you, you have to be able to be adaptable and to recognize that, what you want to do doesn't necessarily work best with what with who you're working with if they have a different set of beliefs and you have to try to meet them halfway to find short-term success and you kind of have to meet them a little bit halfway to kind of eventually find long-term success because they have to be willing to grow and you have to show them a path in which they can feel like they can grow but actually grow in the way that you want them to. Sure, sure. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this yesterday because, you know, as new concepts come up, even like from the coaching side specifically, you know, some coaches might just say, ah, that's, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't feel comfortable teaching that. It's not what I want to do. And that's, but that's okay. It's, it's some of an open mind, like, okay, I see what you're doing. That might work for you. But it's like, there's also the kind of coach who simply will be like, F you, you don't, you shouldn't be even t teaching 10 year olds with that, I those ideas. And that's what gets me so frustrated because it's the, the instant, you know, rejection and then minimizing of, of, of any kind of value of what might be, you know, the next important thing that we're all going to do in five years and that's that's what's interesting. And that, the, the question we have here is, is, you know, are we getting toward the end of what the evolution of basketball is going to be? Because, again, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It's like, you know, we're going to have five 40 percent three point shooters play together on the court at varying degrees of time. Right. That's what we're moving towards. And that will you know, that that will completely change the definition of five out, you know, because now you're going to really be looking for threes even more as you should if you can all shoot that way and figure out how to get those shots. 
So um, I don't know if there's anything beyond that. Once you, you know, aside from coming right back to the way maybe we used to play and and just having a natural ebb and flow of like styles. That's what the rule changers are for. You know that Uh we've had we have reached these apexes multiple times. And then you move the three-point line out further, which is like that's what's going to happen. Is I, you know, there's already been talk about that. I've, I think I've said on this show a couple times. I think that once the once the average, uh, the league average crosses a 40% threshold, I think that's when you can start looking into moving the three-point line. I would not do it yet. I, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how much scoring explodes. So you know, if, if if they're scoring 140 points per game on average, most of these teams, and you know, it probably wanted want to move the line at that point. But like, give it time. You know, people try to react quickly whenever they see a trend emerge. You got to give time for the trend to play itself out. You have well, to let, I, I would, let the marketplace. Way, I would love to think that that's a possibility. But when you look at the historical, you know, three point percentage across the league for the last forever. It doesn't, you know, I mean, I guess it is trending up a little bit, but it's like still been in that same range, 35%, 36% or so for, you know, decades. It doesn't seem to want to really move. I mean, so the only thing I could think of is if you're ever going to get close to 40, like we're going to need a significant jump, like maybe year to year at some point to like get a, get them going. I mean, okay, 08, 09, I'm looking it was 367, which is interesting because that was a time when, you know, they were only taking 18 a game on average, right? And uh, since then, though, it hasn't ever gotten that high and that there's been 10 years, a decade of play. But there's another trend that's sweeping the nation, and it'll make you seem as cool as Arthur Fonzarelli or Tony Stark. But what they didn't have were socks from Bombas. We're talking about the most comfortable socks you'll ever put on your feet. They've got midfoot support, eliminated the annoying seam across the toes, and the softest material with antimicrobial and moisture-wicking properties. They're also bursting with color, with a colorful B on them, which is what Bomba stands for in Latin. Cool. And they donate a pair of socks for every pair purchased. I've got my feet up on my desk right now admiring my dark charcoal heather-colored ankle socks. Visit bombas.com slash breakdown and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash breakdown for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash breakdown. So last year, it was one of the lowest years in the last 20, it looks like. Yep. I'm going back. So 94.95 is, okay, so let's go even further back. So so it was was 28%. In 79.80 when they introduced it. And then by 93.94, it had climbed up to about 33%. Then in 94.95, went to 36%. And then it's kind of stayed ebbing and flowing between 34 to 36 ever since. But it, the highest mark we reached is 0809 was 36.7. Um, it's been kind of fluctuating around the 36% mark ever since. Yeah. And yeah, in the last three years when there's been a massive boon in scoring – the three-point has been pretty consistent, floating around 36. So, yeah, we haven't seen that move yet. Right. And so here's the thing. The offensive ratings have been going up because the volume of shots, and that's sort of what, like, the root of a lot of the analytics guys will will say. They'll point to the sort of the volume of just more of those threes. will you know, yield more points. 
And then, you know, but at, at some point, I do feel like attention needs to be paid to, like, I guess I, I like to call it success rate, but it's basically a field goal percentage. At some point, uh, you know, the higher volume at the same percentage has to affect the game in negative ways, I would imagine. That percentage sure. needs to go up. It's like Robert Mueller needed to have more indictments, <laughs> and we didn't get them. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we need that needs to move up or else – at some point, like if we keep increasing the volume and we don't have an increasing efficiency there, you know what I mean? I just feel like there's that, that that's going to have diminishing returns at some point. Yeah, because you know, while the three-point percentage has remained stable, the EFG percentage, which gives an extra point for three-point shots, has gone up significantly. So that's gone up 20 uh, – you know, it's gone up from 50% to 52.5% over the last three years. And Back in the 2000s, it was down around like 47 percent or so. So that's that's what's that's where you can see the change reflected right. in volume. So right, and so I'd imagine that that what I would even more mathematically connected to what I was saying was yeah, you'll just start to see that effective field goal percentage start to peak, and it, you know it, it, we're going to hit that. You know right? I mean, well, I, okay, I guess you know what I'm not the math guy necessarily, but if you keep increasing the volume, will the will the effective field goal percentage keep going up? Uh, yeah, if you're because if you're hitting more threes, the threes have more value, right. yes. and therefore you would expect the EFG to continue to okay, increase. Right, so it would go up, but again, you're having you're you're, you're missing a lot more shots. Yeah, so I mean the number, the, you know, the EFG number, it's like it's a number. You know, it's not like it's the sole reflection on what the value of the game is. It's it's just one. It's a very it's a very effective, pun intended, way to characterize the caliber of shooting. So yeah, um, no, yeah. So I, I get it, and, and you know what? And obviously, that's why we're seeing you know more efficient offenses and they're score, scoring better. Uh, but I, just it just strikes me that there is some notion and some balance of of success rate, and at, at some point it, it, the volume is not going to solve it. And in fact, I bet you if I did a really deep dive, I feel like I've seen this before and I have looked at it. Is again the teams that are that really win, you know? And by the way, winning means a lot of different things. You know, the Houston's haven't won a title, but it doesn't mean they haven't been winning. Uh, but there's, there is this notion that, you know, at some point it, it could hold you back as well. You need to be able to shoot a little bit better than what the average is or have that be a reliable thing necessarily and not just sort of say, like, you know, it's like the Russell Westbrook argument where, you know, he, he was a pretty, you know, average finisher at best for by percentage, but the argument was, well, he does it so many times to the basket that it's actually like that's why he's elite. And, I, and, the, I don't know. and the caliber of what he's doing is incredible too. You know, it's like the, the important thing to remember is while while we can talk about the statistical side of the game all we want, the game is a it's a physical game, and you have to and it's a game you're supposed to be watching. And so, what it really matters is how does it look stylistically. And I mean, Russell Westbrook is extremely frustrating, but like, you know, he probably makes about thirty plays a game that you're just like, holy shit, and no. it's exciting you and it's fun 30? to watch. Okay, twenty. Well, no, there's thirty where you say holy shit, but sometimes it's probably negative half of the time and positive half of the time. Right? No, no, no. He makes he'll make like remember like he he probably drives nine times a game. I would say like one or two of those is like oh that? my god, what was that? And then you know four of them are like just misses at the rim that are like and, and that's right. And if you want to know why it gets me so frustrated, it's because you know those are the shots he just shouldn't miss. And it's a question of training. Like, he should be training better to, to be able to make those. And they're, like, the ones that are easy, whatever, that he has no plan for. They're out of control. They're too fast. He doesn't, you know, all those different things. That's what frustrates me a lot about it is it just seems like he doesn't seem to want to improve on that. He's, like, happy with where he is. And, again, happy where he is is a triple-double machine and all different stuff. But there's a good example of uh, a time where, you know, he, he, I believe that he kind of holds his team back. Uh, and that's why oh, for he sure. struggled. 
I mean, we talked about it too many times, and so we don't want to get down this rabbit hole. But like, you know, Russ, Russ is like goat potential. I mean, he's uh, yeah, he could be a top ten player of all time if he had if he had discipline in the way that he attacked, but he doesn't. And I mean, I think he's improved on it to a degree, but his also his shot has gotten worse and worse yeah. over the last couple of years as he's improved since KD left. And I think KD leaving was a bit of a wake up call for him. But like, yeah, the things that he could do put him at a at a plateau that. Only probably about you know ten to fifteen guys have ever right. reached, but the, oh. most of those people were smarter decision makers. Not smarter, but like were more controlled and disciplined decision makers, and they didn't make as ma- many negative plays throughout the game. Oh, how about this? And also like you know being a, 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 an easier teammate to play alongside. Um, I think him. He's one, like an example. You could even argue Chris Paul falls into that same category because there seems to be an expiration date with Chris Paul where people kind of. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily because Chris Paul is a willing facilitator. He's a great passer. He does all those things. But at some point, there's a mindset with him where he kind of exhausts everybody. And it definitely bleeds into the court. And that's another issue, too, where I think Russ it probably has even gotten better at that. I feel like, you know, I, listen, I'm not around close enough to see the interactions that go on, like on the bench, whatever. But I certainly remember earlier on, a few years ago, where he made it really difficult on teammates the way he would, you know, dis- uh, communicate with them. Seems like he's calmed down on that a lot, which is which is important. But uh, that's another whole component that's not measured ever with any kind of number. Yeah, I, I think that my perception from the outside, and, and obviously being you know being a reporter in the league, you talk to a lot of other reporters and people, and you you pick up a decent amount from the outside. But my impression has been that most of Russ's teammates love him and run, would run through a wall with him, but a lot of them get tired out by the reckless playing style. Yeah. And with him, it's almost never about the personality. It's they almost always love him, and there's so many former teammates that love him to this day. And I just I just spent some time with Ennis Cantor, and he was he was extolling uh, Westbrook constantly, and he yeah. loved Westbrook. Love is an interesting word, and it reminds me of the kind of love you and your partner can share when you're in the bedroom. Now you might be at that point in your life where you're not always ready to spring down the court for a quick bucket. But have no fear, you can increase your performance and get extra confidence in the boudoir with Blue Chew. They bring you the first edible with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. Chewables work up to twice as fast as a pill, and even on a full stomach, these babies work like a charm, day or night. Even if you're an all-star, Blue Chew will add a whole other level to your game. Blue Chew is prescribed online, no doctor's office waiting rooms, no pharmacies, and it's shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code BREAKDOWN. Just pay the $5 shipping fee. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code BREAKDOWN, to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. From his commercials and all that stuff, I, I kind of would, would, would like to hang out with him. He seems like a nutty, fun guy, you know, who's got like a dude, sense of humor. He's right? a weird-ass dude. Like, I, I feel uncomfortable around him a lot of the time just because it's like he's one of those guys that, like, scares you because he just, like, intense. he seems extremely intense. Yeah. And you don't know what he's thinking, and he seems like he's annoyed by everyone around you. Uh, so you kind of get, like, a little bit freaked out around him. But, like... You know, I, it was one of the most surprising interactions I've had in a while was um, 
I, uh, I, I like I tried to catch him as he was leaving to talk to him about something for a story I was working on. And I thought he would just like basically like give me the finger and blow me off. But he he did blow me off. But he was basically like, hey, I'm sorry, bro. I got to run. Not now, but uh, next time. And I was like surprised because like usually in the past when I've seen Russ, he just like literally ignores people or like curses at them or whatever. And I think he's he's probably matured a good deal. But like people that know Russ and that Russ because Russ is one of those people that he's so famous that he has to do like kind of like the the fame you know the super famous stiff arm to most people but then when he's around people that he's truly close with and I do know some of those people they say he's the most remarkable you know, incredible person they absolutely love him so yeah so and you know, I, and Russ, I can, that's yeah, what Russ is really like I, I can get that I just you know and I, you know but again there's also the court persona as well that we can see and you know it's it's bled, it's bled out into the media a little bit where we've seen I can remember like Serge Ibaka complaining. Where, you know, I think the complaint was, all I do is I run down, I stand in the corner and I wait. And then every like fifth possession, maybe I touch the ball. And that was what, like I had interviewed Steve Kerr and about like pick and rolls and why they don't run a lot of pick and rolls. And it's primarily, it's what he said. He's like, I don't want to have team players on my team who just sort of stand there for possession after possession in a row and never gets a chance to touch the ball, which is that Phil Jackson thing back in the day where that's why he, that one of the reasons why he put the triangle offense in was he just felt like, you know, players needed to just touch the ball, feel part of the offense, not shoot it, just, you know, be part of it. They'll play harder on defense. They'll be more connected to the game with energy. And uh, that's the danger, by the way, as we go forward with the league is that, you know, with the prevalence of pick and roll and the prevalence of like when you watch what Houston does on offense, which is like distill the attack into its very basic components. There's not a lot of movement, not a lot of passing. Um, you run the risk like it, it takes a specific kind of player who can handle that. And probably will change the way we train, where you need to be able to handle running down the court, just standing there, standing there, getting back on defense, running on the court, standing there. And then finally, the fourth possession, you'll catch the ball and then you're expected to make a high percentage of shots. That's a different skill set than like a lot of people are training for. All right. I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Is there anything else in the the deadest of the dead periods that you want to go over before we get out of here? I don't know. I, I can just sort of think I'm stuck in my uh, in my mode of like making Do videos. It. And I you got know, a really we... cool one coming up about LeBron. Who was LeBron's best teammate ever? Oh, uh, besides Larry Hughes. Um, right. Or Mo Williams. I, I, yeah, I think Wade for those first couple of years, that's got to be it, right? Uh, yeah. So what I did was I looked at the I looked at the year before they played with LeBron to see like you know coming into that season when they were going to play with him who was the best. By the way, uh, yeah, the traditional very normal answer would be Dwayne Wade, but guess what? I never follow that. Uh, so I chose somebody else, um, and, and primarily because he played in Toronto and yeah, I think was I like a way station. He really was good. He really was good. And you know what? Bosch would have been. In this era, I he would be a, he would be better than he'd be as good as Giannis. I swear to God, he would be like that. He because he wow. could really shoot it, and I, he'd be shooting threes. He was shooting threes in the corner a little bit that by the in the end of Toronto. But um, his his uh, play in the low post and the high post, like his stuff in the high post, then would be so awesome now in all the pistol action that they would on a run. And uh, and he'd I, be, probably be a better better ball handler if he was coming into the league, you know, five years ago as opposed to fifteen years ago, right? But I think he was, you know, but that last year in Toronto, I think he was a really good ball. He certainly could from the high post handle the sure. ball and, and break people down. And he was so just like uh, tensile strength, like he had um, core strength. He wasn't like huge, but he was so uh, he was strong. He was quick. He had a nice, beautiful jump shot. He could do any kind of post move you wanted. Um, so I had that all done laid out, but you know what? The other thing is, is Kevin Love. I know he gets a lot of, uh, crap around town, even when he's in Minnesota, 
that dude and the way he fit into Adelman's offense, uh, he was awesome. He was literally awesome. He would run pinch post, you know, at the, at the at near the elbow, fake the handoff, and then do a step back three pointer and just nail him. I mean, nobody does that even now. I, I wish they would run that for him now, where he could do that. It's crazy. I wonder if that's something Brooklyn's going to start doing with Joe Harris, with the way that they're set up. Oh, like with Joe Harris playing the four. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, I would have said Kuruks, but with the arrest, who knows what's gonna happen there. But Wait I feel like I've, he got arrested? Oh god. All right, we're not we're not gonna do this on the show, but yeah, he got arrested for choking his girlfriend and it's not it's not looking good. So Yeah, yikes. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well we never even about Boogie threatening his baby mama. Yeah, it's it's not a it's it's wow. Anyway. Not a good time. Not All a good right, time. Well, listen, awesome stuff. Let, Thank you for uh, for creating a show out of whole cloth with me today. Did, did what I could. I mean, with the white claw shortage, we got to find some way to entertain the masses, right? It looks like you're wearing a white cloth right now, so you're already ahead of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow. Uh, all right. Well, how about you? Anything coming up we need to tout or shout out? or? Uh, I just did. Um, I think since the last show, I had to sit down with Ennis Cantor in New York where we talked about how he is trying to make Danny Ainge's dreams come true and become a three-point shooter. Um, I think I have probably three more stories on that on Canner coming in the near future. We we spent a couple days together, so I have a lot of material from that one. Oh, wow. uh, so look out for that. I just talked to Paul Westfall uh, at the Hall of Fame enshrinement uh, about his days in Boston. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Speaking um, of not, a guy who uh, who could really play, I know I maybe have to do a video on him because man, he was great back in the seventies in the NBA. And another guy who'd be such a great fit in the modern game is, you know, he was because he was a kind of a combo guard back then. And it's funny, we haven't said combo guard in so long, but I feel like most yeah. of the league is, you know, that nowadays. So he would be a perfect fit in today's game. Yeah. And a great athlete could really jump out of the yeah. team. And such a smart dude. I mean, you can see why he was such a good coach. Or I mean, he uh, just a, such a thoughtful guy, really funny, really great person to talk to. Well, you know, um, there's some really fascinating people there at the Hall of Fame this, this weekend. It was I great. have a great interview with him really quickly uh, on my YouTube channel. If you can look it up, it probably has like 3,000 views uh, because it was done way back in the day. But he had a great line in there where I said, um, you know, like, you know, we we're talking about offense, what offense he ran when he was playing. And I said, well, what offense did you like the most? And he goes, Anyone that let me shoot. <laughs> I was like, okay, that was right. So he, he was really great with those kind of jokes. You know, yeah. and his yeah. impersonation of Tommy Heinsohn coaching was pretty amazing too. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah definitely go check that out on The Athletic. All right, cool. We'll check that out. We'll check everything else out. And, uh, yeah, head up to the YouTube channel, and we'll get some really great content coming out there too. So, Jared, thanks for coming on the show. Everyone else, thanks for listening. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, for a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jared? in Hall of Fame mode.